This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, perspective we haven't heard before. A doctor who helps people end their lives under Colorado's still relatively new medical aid and dying law. Mostly, Dr. Corey Carroll helps patients live well as a primary care physician in Fort Collins. But when it's clear they are terminally ill, and when they ask, he's there to help people die well. Sometimes the request comes from folks who aren't his patients because their own family doc won't help. Dr. Carroll told me about one such case, a man in his late 70s who was diagnosed with terminal heart disease. This gentleman's whole life was about being physically active, skiing, biking, hiking, outdoor. And again, he was 79 years old, and he would ski over 100 days a year. He would bike over 100 miles a week. This was just one of those amazing individuals, and his his life deteriorated quickly once his heart deteriorated. It's not just a question of having your quality of life be affected, though. Of course, Colorado law requires that someone has a maximum of six months to live, and two doctors have to attest to that fact. This person also has to be competent to make an informed decision and be able to self-administer the drugs. Uh, and as we said, this was someone who came to you because his own family doc, uh, I guess, was unwilling to offer these kinds of prescriptions. Correct. The Colorado Medical Society took a poll of his membership in, I think, 2015. And it was looking at this since we were seeing this coming down the pike. And it was, a, as many things, controversial. And we had about a third of the physicians who responded to that survey were supportive a third were opposed, and about a third were neutral. So when the law, which failed twice to make it through the legislature, uh, was passed through a voter initiative, overwhelmingly, now we are faced with this brand new thing. And I think doctors are very, very confused at times when they bring up this idea like, well, you're going to help me die. And the law says yes. What did the conversation with this patient sound like? You had to check all the boxes I just talked about, but I wonder if, if it gets into more than that. Well, sure. This is not the ideal. I've had patients prior to the bill passing plead with me to help them in their life. They were in a terrible, miserable state. And I said there is no legal process that I can do, but I can certainly involve hospice and care. So this was a gentleman who wasn't my patient. So I had to get comfortable. And so I not only talked with the patient, I talked with his wife, I talked with his children. I didn't feel comfortable saying, oh, yeah, here, let's just sign you up and give you the meds. I had to know what was going on. Again, not ideal, but I was very fortunate to be involved in this person's life and with his decision. And it was clear to me that he was competent. He had great ideas. Interestingly enough, his children were very sad. I mean, the interesting dynamic with medical aid and dying is none of my patients, none of the people that are seeking this out want to die. That's the issue. People say, well, you're killing yourself. It's like, well, no, they are dying. They're just dying miserably. And there is no known reasonable expectation that they're not going to die. I think that's a distinction you're making, perhaps, between suicide sure. and medical aid in dying. Sure. I wonder what you'd say to someone who thinks, well, gosh, then learn to find happiness in a new scenario, under it, new circumstances. It's not my job 
or in my opinion, any other physician jobs to tell a person how to think, how to believe, how to. Now, it's my job to see, gosh, is there something wrong with you? Are you depressed? Are you having some sort of mental breakdown which is interfering with your judgment in a reasonable sense? So it's patient autonomy. And that's, again, a big distinction. I think doctors take control and they tell patients, this is what you should do. Uh, instead of asking patients, what is it you want? Did you feel an obligation to talk to his regular family physician? I made an attempt. Um, my hope is, and the statistics are showing that this is becoming more mainstream. My hope is this is not going to be a cottage industry where a few doctors are going to do this. That's the worst thing, in my opinion, that can happen. My hope is that I could teach the 60% of physicians who are either supportive or neutral, let me show you a little bit more about the details of the, the bill. So I reached out to his family physician to see if he was curious about the law and just wasn't ready to begin the prescription process. And it turned out he was one of those um, 30% that was against the bill. Entirely. But I did talk to the cardiologist who was involved and that doctor was let's just say somewhat rude, thinking that, that what I was doing was wrong. Fortunately, there was another practitioner in that group, the electrophysiologist, who saw the issues going on and was willing to be the consulting physician. In other words, there needs to be that second physician. That's another issue, indeed. Take us to the day that a patient decides to end their life. Do you have to ensure that you're Far away, not involved. Heavens no. I made it a point, and I still do, that if a patient's family, patient, wants me to be present at the uh, ingestion of the medication, I will be there. Somebody needs to be there that can pronounce the body. Part of this process is not only understanding, well, you're taking your life, but, well, once that has occurred, you have a dead body. And a dead body, not in a hospital or a nursing home, or if there's a hospice involved, those three scenarios, the coroner doesn't worry. But if somebody's just found dead somewhere, the coroner has to open an investigation. Mm. So somebody has to pronounce the body. So I made my services available. So to answer your question of where do I need to be, first off, I tell my patients, don't even get the medication until you think you may be taking it. That saves the problem of dealing with this medicine in a cabinet somewhere. But the bottom line is I try to uh, say to patients, listen, this is an option. You don't have to take the medicine. And just knowing that it's there can sometimes give the patient the peace of mind that can move forward. How many, as you say, ingestions of the medication, how many of those have you attended, which is six? Six. And what are they like for you? Oh, I I feel you know privileged and honored to be... Uh, accepted into the home because it is at their home. Uh, the first gentleman had his three adult children there. They all saw his desire to do this. They all respected his wish. They all saw it as something that was important for him. But they were torn because here's their father dying. But he wanted them there. His wife was there. There were some friends there. And, and, and we all went into the bedroom. And of course, once you take the medicine, you need to be laying down. So it was an amazing experience, and the patient took the medication. Within five minutes, was going to sleep. He was telling everybody how much he loved them, and they were telling him how much they loved him. There were tears. There were people holding hands. 
And within a short period of time, he quit breathing. Now, I was there to kind of help because he had a pacemaker. Well, that kind of kept his heart beating for a little bit longer. Oh, interesting. That would not have occurred if the pacemaker wasn't there. But, but at the end of that, in about 30 minutes, finally his heart stopped. He, he basically was dead long before that. But his family came up to me and they said, thank you. Thank you for allowing him to end this misery in a very peaceful and beautiful way. I know that the medication can take varying lengths of time Absolutely. to work. Uh, have all of these no. been quick? Have some of them been drawn out? Have any of them been hard to watch? I would not say hard to watch, but the most important component to this, and this is critically important, is that we are orally ingesting a medication. And the law stipulates the patient needs to take the medication. They don't have to mix it up. They don't have to put it in a glass. They just have to drink it. Or if they have what's called an NG tube, which is an azogastric tube, they have to push the medicine through that tube. So they have to be the one to basically take the medicine outside of their body and put it in their body. So the critical component, and this is what I educate my physician colleagues on, is absorption of the medication, obviously nausea, vomiting, Prior to the medications, there are protocols to diminish the, the, the nausea, vomiting component, but you can't guarantee that that won't happen. So if you take the medicine and you throw up, it's not going to work. So when I assess a patient, that's the first thing I'm trying to sort out. It. I did have one lady with very un, um, unusual biliary cancer that spread and created a huge amount of trouble to her colon. In what, a, what kind of? Bile, biliary. Bile. Yeah, I so see. in her biliary system. So GI. And one of her main complaints was nausea and vomiting. So there are reports of, of people throwing up the medication and they wake up because it's not a, a dose to actually allow the end of life to occur. It strikes me that this speaks to the importance of training, of knowledge. It's not as if you can start from scratch and know what you're doing, even as a trained physician. To a degree. Um, Physicians can contact through Compassion and Choices. This is the advocacy group. Right. A physician who has done this for 20 years and, and get some information and education and ask questions. I wonder how this has changed your own sense of terminal illness and of what, of what you might do if you were in these patients' shoes. Well, this hasn't changed my view at all. I've been <clears throat> a family physician for 27 years and... As I tell my patients, there's worse things than death. I sometimes get to the question, well, you're playing God. And I go, I think sometimes we're playing God when we save the patient from that heart attack, that cancer, that automobile accident, which is fabulous. I love the technology. I love the fact that we can restore people back to a functional state and they can have a life. But when there is no capacity to let them return to function, I'm going to tell them the truth and I'm going to say, if you choose this medical aid and dying option, I will be your attending physician and support you. I checked out your medical license, which is active, and there's absolutely no discipline or medical board actions against you. And I just wonder, like, do you have concerns because there are such strong feelings about this law of – of complaints or of people besmirching your character, or I even wonder if this affects 
uh, the insurance you pay for malpractice. Like, have you had to consider all of those things? Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. it, it does not affect my malpractice insurance. We we have agreed that because it is law and it is legal and if you follow the rules. When my patients came to me prior to the 2016 passage of this law and they asked me, Doc, I need to die. Help me die. And I said, I can't do that. I can't do that legally. I can teach you about voluntary cessation of eating and drinking. I can get you into palliative care and hospice care. But there is nothing I can do to hasten your death based on the law. That's the truth. I've had patients kill themselves with weapons, not under my advisement or argument, but they were at an extreme point of their life. So to answer your question of do I worry about it, statistically speaking, you know, I've been very fortunate, knock on wood, that I haven't gotten sued. But that's pretty much part of the deal of being a doctor. You're going to get sued. The question is, did you do something wrong? And arguably – no, this is a law. I'm allowing patients autonomy. And the beautiful thing of this is I have another physician that agrees that this patient meets the criteria. Have you changed any minds? In other words, you've, you've talked about calling up doctors and saying, I'd, I'd be happy to share my experience, my knowledge. Have any of them said, sure? Yeah, I've, I've sent emails out to physicians that have, have contacted me. I've talked to them on the phone. I can't say definitively I've followed up with it. But I've answered their questions. And it's the same concept that I had when I asked Dr. Grube at the beginning. Oh, boy, this is kind of scary. Tell me from your perspective of somebody who's experienced this, what do I do? How do I move forward? And with that, which is how we're taught in medical school, you know, they kind of say read one, do one, teach one. I mean, it's pretty aggressive when we learn procedures and things. But once you understand, and and this is not atypical physiology, we're basically giving a medication that in high doses is going to suppress breathing. I mean, unfortunately, that's what's happening with the opioid crisis. When you overdose on any drug that affects the central nervous system, one of the potential caveats is you quit breathing. If you don't breathe, you die. So we're using the, the known capacity of these medications and the known physiology The hard part is we're prescribing it for that purpose. I want to say this is a small, small slice of what you do as a doctor. Mostly what you do is keeping people healthy and alive. Oh, absolutely. Do you find that patients have trouble getting the medication? I have always taken that role on as finding a pharmacy. So I never give a patient a prescription and say, good luck. That that has happened. Just I'm sure from our own reporting, we found absolutely. Yeah. Um, but we're seeing more pharmacies. I've found pharmacies closer to Fort Collins, but I've always reached out and found the pharmacies. And some have had to send my patients to Denver because we had no local pharmacies. Now we do have local pharmacies participating. But that but, too has had to be um, groomed, if you will. Absolutely. Can this be misused? Are there ways in which you have seen vulnerabilities in the law that if you were a different kind of person, you could take advantage of? Well, I think everything can be abused and misused. To me, when somebody says, well, gosh, you know, the kids want to take grandma's money and they're going to push her to the dock. Well, if it's my patient, I know grandma and I also know the kids. So probably it's very unlikely 
that that's going to happen. Number one. Number two, there's another doctor that needs to validate that the patient is competent, not being coerced, making intelligent decisions. So I would argue there's less chance of abuse rather than a death of somebody that just occurs and no doctor has been involved. Bit of a delicate question, but I, I want to ask what you charge for this. Now, if this is a patient of yours, they're not paying anything for that particular service uh, because they pay you on a monthly basis to be their doctor. Do I have that right? Correct, through but, the direct primary care model. Yeah. So what happens if it's not one of your patients? That would depend on their financial means. What's the range? 200 to $600. 200 to $600 for, for that act, for that service. Correct. And, and I'm somewhat unique, and I don't expect my colleagues to follow suit, but I say to them that involves all the work that I do to basically sort out whether they're, they qualify, prescribe the medicines, and attend the uh, ingestion of the medication in their home. After you do any press, you know, radio interviews, if you're quoted in articles, et cetera, does the phone start to ring off the hook? Not off the hook, um, but I do get inquiries. I've had people call me from Florida, and I said, sorry, you have to be a Colorado resident. And and this is beginning to gain traction across the country. So I do think that more and more states will be adopting this, and there will be more and more learning curve. Oregon has taken this on 20 years ago, and they've got a great amount of data that we can tap into. But once again, this is a controversial issue, and the survey that the Medical Society took allowed us to change our policy, which was written in the 1970s to be opposed to physician-assisted suicide. A couple things we've done. It's not physician-assisted suicide. It's medical aid in dying. So we changed how it's labeled. Number one. Number two, we moved from opposition to neutral. We're neutral on abortion. We're neutral on guns. We understand that in the physician community, you have different opinions. And so this policy is now in the Medical Society of Colorado as the organization being neutral on medical aid and dying, allowing a physician and their patient to make their own decision. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Dr. Corey Carroll is a primary care doctor in Fort Collins who has prescribed medical aid in dying. We've been getting a range of perspectives on how the Colorado End of Life Options Act has rolled out since voters passed it in 2016. After last week's horrific crash on I-70, I've been thinking a lot lately about those signs that say, truckers, don't be fooled, you're not down yet. The history of those signs traces back to another grisly crash in 1989, which Chris Henning of Denver remembers. It was August, he was headed home from a summer weekend in the mountains, and traffic had been backed up for miles and after coming to a complete standstill for about 30 minutes, we thought, okay, this is an accident. And as we got closer to what they call Dead Man's Curve, they actually routed us off the highway and back up over it. So we thought it's probably a pretty serious accident if they're actually clearing the highway. Once Henning exited, traffic stopped again. They were above the crash, and people started getting out of their cars to see for themselves. At first, I didn't want to look at it at all. I'm not usually a looky-loo. But a friend of mine who was in the car with me said, you've, you've got to come out here and take a look at this. A semi hauling 44 horses had lost control as it was descending I-70 near Morrison. It plowed into four vehicles and flipped over. Two people were killed. 
So were dozens of the horses. And there were just cars and wreckage and horses all over the place. And it was one of the most disturbing things I think I've ever seen. People would gander over the side, and next thing you know, they're throwing up. I mean, it was just very disturbing. It certainly wasn't the first fatal crash on that stretch of road. A Denver Post story from that time reported 15 deaths in the previous decade. But the accident Henning witnessed did mark a turning point. Dan Hopkins was spokesman back then for Colorado's Highway Department. He says after the horse trailer crash, there was a task force to make I-70 safer. And one of the things we came up with was uh, innovative signage. It was not an original idea here. We actually heard about use of innovative signage at California Department of Transportation. They've been using some experimental signage on Donner Pass where they had similar problems. Hopkins says California was seeing some success with those signs, so Colorado decided to give it a go. We came up with a number of signs to warn the truckers to stay in low gear, to keep checking their brakes. And the most notable sign is the one that says, truckers, don't be fooled, you're not down yet. And that particularly came about because of a lot of interviews with truck drivers who said that it's kind of an illusion as you hit that part of the interstate. You see the Denver skyline in the distance, and you have the sensation in in a sort of a flat area that you're out of the mountains. The blunt signs made a difference, Hopkins says. The Rocky Mountain News reported in 2007 that fatalities on I-70 near Dead Man's Curve were cut in half after the signs were installed, even in the face of growing traffic volume. And we'll be back in the next half hour with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Changes to health care are coming to Colorado. It was a top priority for Democrats this session. And with just two days left in the legislature, we're going to ask what they've accomplished and what's left to do. CPR health reporter John Daly joins us. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. Help us understand the administration's promises on health care. Well, along with fighting climate change and paying for all-day kindergarten, health care is Governor Polis's big marquee issue this session. Here he was talking about it in early April. This was at an event in Denver marking the 100th day of his administration calling the legislative effort. A historic bipartisan health care session that will save people money on health care. Uh, we really are uh, making history here in Colorado. Democrats have made good on some of that ambitious agenda, but a number of other items are really coming down to the wire. Well, let's talk about that agenda. First, about a key bill, the public option. The public option, that's right. This bipartisan bill would have state agencies study the concept of establishing a public option allowing Coloradans to buy into the Medicaid program. That would likely offer lower price coverage than many Coloradans can currently get. This could be a big deal for rural counties, which may have just one insurer. 
This bill is through the legislature and on to the governor. Backers argue this could be a game changer, uh, but it would need federal approval. And so far, uh, the Trump administration hasn't said if it backs the idea. If it did go through, it really could add some competition, give people more options and maybe help drive down costs. Okay, but we'd have to see what Washington does. Another major bill is all about reinsurance. This is essentially insurance for insurance companies. Exactly. It's another big idea designed to save people money. The state would take on some of the priciest medical bills on Colorado's individual market. That would allow some providers to lower premiums, but it's a big ticket item, $237 million, which would be split with the feds. It's been a huge battle to figure out how to pay for it, but it looks like they may, they may have found a way with tens of millions from hospitals and a similar fund from a fee originally set up to go to affordable housing. It's still awaiting legislative approval and would also need federal approval. Okay. What about two other things Democrats have explored? Reining in prescription drug costs. I've heard that a lot from Governor Polis. And uh, connected to that, buying prescription drugs from Canada. Right. Well, let's take that latter thing first. That bill would create a program to buy prescription drugs from licensed Canadian suppliers and distribute them to pharmacies and hospitals here in Colorado. It's passed in the state Senate, but not in the House yet. And Drum roll, please, here. It would need federal approval. We're hearing that a lot. Okay, D.C. has to weigh in on a lot of this stuff. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And the other bill uh, on prescription drugs would uh, reduce prescription drug prices by having the state collect and report data on prices and requiring drug companies to publish certain price increases. And that bill has not yet gotten a vote in either chamber. And and there's one uh, late-breaking development here, a bill to reduce insulin prices, got final passage just last night. So that one now goes on to the governor. Okay, then there's another high-profile cost-related issue, and that is surprise out-of-network billing. Yeah, understand this. Yeah, we have been hearing a lot about this. This out-of-network issue seems to resonate with a lot of folks. The bill would limit how much money patients can be charged for out-of-network services that they got on an in-network medical visit. Similar bills have failed in recent years. This one is in the long line that's awaiting a final vote. Now, John, there uh, were some high-profile misses on health care earlier this session, uh, like allowing what would have been the nation's first supervised injection site for IV drug users. Right. That's a trial facility where people could inject drugs under medical supervision. Some Republicans and Colorado's U.S. attorney criticized the idea and support from Denver's mayor, who, as you know, is up for re-election, softened, and that bill just never materialized at all. So we'll see if something similar comes up in a future session. There are some pretty significant last-minute items, like making it harder to opt out of vaccinations. Yeah, we have a national measles outbreak happening with more than 700 cases this year. That's a 25-year peak. Democratic Representative Kyle Mullock, he's a nurse. He sponsored a bill to require parents to submit a form in person to a health department the first time they seek a non-medical vaccine exemption. Right now, it could be submitted directly to the school. This has sparked passionate marathon testimony and debate. Opponents who don't believe vaccines are safe or effective say the proposal infringes on parents' rights. Karen Romano of Lakewood came to tell lawmakers vaccines damaged her grandsons and the fear of measles is overblown. They're not that bad. I've had the measles. 
We've had measles parties to get the measles. It's the kids who actually get the vaccine that shed the measles virus. But the federal agency that oversees infectious disease, the CDC, says vaccines are safe. It strongly discourages intentional measles exposure and says the measles virus is particularly dangerous, even deadly for children under five. I spoke with another mom, Angie Anderson, also from Lakewood. She was holding her six-month-old and saying she was terrified an outbreak could spread like wildfire, that her two kids could get sick because of other unvaccinated children in the community. So for a child like mine who hasn't been able to get all of his shots, he's not protected. I've, I can do everything in my power to protect my children, but I can't until they're fully vaccinated. So children who are older need to be vaccinated in order to stop the spread. Now, according to the CDC, Colorado is now last in the country for kindergarten vaccinations for diseases like measles, mumps and rubella. The vaccine bill passed uh, the Colorado House last weekend. The Senate has yet to pass it in complicating matters. Uh, the governor has said he wouldn't sign the bill in its current form. He's expressed a wariness right here on your show uh, to require uh, parents to turn in a form to the state. And uh, we will be hearing, uh, we hope, from Governor Polis next week in a sit-down conversation post-session. Uh, also, in the waning hours of this session, we've seen a big new proposal to fight teen vaping in Colorado. Uh, as you've been reporting, uh, we're number one in the nation, but not in a good way here. Well, this is a last minute bill. It would ask voters to raise taxes on cigarettes and impose new taxes on nicotine vaping devices like the popular Juul. The plan would raise more than $300 million annu annually uh, for Colorado. That would be split between youth education and health programs. The bill's sponsor, Dr. Yadira Caraveo, a Democrat and pediatrician from Thornton, says Colorado's tobacco taxes are among the nation's lowest. Absolutely. For Colorado, it is a much bigger issue than in other states. And we tax at a much lower rate than other states. But critics say the higher taxes would only serve to fuel a black market, which would hurt small businesses and the local tax base. Amanda Wheeler from Colorado Springs owns several vape shops. She said she was skeptical the tax could raise as much money as advertised. I don't think consumers are going to be willing to pay those increased prices in the local vape shops. I, I feel that they will go online to look for cheaper prices elsewhere. That bill was introduced just 10 days before the end of the legislative session. It's now in the House. We're starting to see big tobacco mobilized to stop this bill. Ads from a group called No Blank Checks for Colorado have popped up in recent days. They say Colorado's politicians are trying to pass a huge tax increase in the last days of the legislative session. And this same group spent nearly $17 million to defeat a similar ballot measure in 2016, and that really far outpaced the spending of, of backers of that proposal. Now, lawmakers have been working on a couple of other key measures to combat teen vaping, which, again, is really high here in Colorado. That's right. One changes a clause that's been in Colorado law for 45 years. It said local communities would lose their share of the state's cigarette tax money if they tried to pass their own tobacco taxes or licenses. Lawmakers this session passed a proposal that does away with that. The governor has signed that. Some more local autonomy there. Exactly. Local uh, authority over that issue. Another bill would update the state's Clean Indoor Air Act. It would add e-cigarettes to the list of items prohibited in public places and the workplace. Backers say this addresses health concerns about e-cigarette chemicals. 
uh, the House and the Senate have to square their changes on that one still. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and our health reporter John Daly is giving us an update on the plethora, the flotilla yeah, of health bills. Lots to talk about. In this session. Let's talk about another key problem here in Colorado, opioids. What's been happening at the legislature in that arena? Well, there's a bill that looks to reduce the harm caused by substance use disorders. It allows for clean syringe exchanges out of hospital emergency rooms. That's something new. It creates a fund to help pay for naloxone or Narcan. That's the overdose reversal drug and to save money by buying it in bulk. It expands a household medication take-back program to allow for the safe disposal of needles and syringes, and it requires a policy to reduce ID barriers for treatment. That's essentially to make it easier to treat people who are homeless. That bill has passed both houses with bipartisan support. And there's another interesting one involving drug treatment for inmates. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges involving treating inmates with a substance use disorder or the way things are now essentially not treating them at all. This provides funding and allows medication-assisted treatment to be provided to inmates who were getting it before they entered jail. And this bill has also made it through both houses. On a related topic, mental health, are lawmakers making changes there? That's another big priority. Mental health advocates believe a bill about mental health parity will have the biggest impact. It aims to shift the system away from expensive late-stage treatment toward early intervention. It'll also increase consumer protections. And another measure deals with strengthening uh, the safety net so that people are not incarcerated for symptoms of their mental illness. And a third deals with kids' mental health, more money and support for school mental health professionals. Lawmakers have passed all three of those, and Governor Polis is expected to sign them. Just very briefly, I'd like to discuss teen suicide. Uh, What's happening to bring that rate down? Well, in 2016, Colorado had the third highest suicide rate in the nation for kids age 10 to 14, according to the CDC. To address that, a bill would allow children as young as 12 to seek mental health counseling without a a parent's permission. Therapists could notify parents after three sessions whether or not uh, the child agrees. Uh, And uh, we've... uh, there, these similar bills have run in the past. They've died in the in the Republican Senate. This one's passed in the House and is waiting uh, action by the full Senate. CPR health reporter John Daly tracking what state lawmakers have and haven't passed this session when it comes to health care. Voters are choosing who will lead Colorado's capital city, including Denver's mayor. Incumbent Michael Hancock hopes for a third and final term. This week, with help from our colleagues at Denverite, we're meeting the front runners, asking them each the same set of questions. So here's Michael Hancock on why he's running and what the city's biggest challenges are. I'm running because we've had an amazing um, run as a city coming out of the recession. We've become one of the most economically vibrant cities in the country. Um, and while we've done that in terms of achieving our lowest unemployment rate, um, you know, new companies into Denver, and certainly population growth, we recognize that some people have not come along in this uh, economy of prosperity. And so I really want to focus on making sure that we open up a more inclusive, equitable economy going forward in the next four years. And that means building uh, more affordable and attainable housing to kind of level the market out and but give people an opportunity to live here uh, while they are also thriving in more livable wage uh, jobs. Uh, we also want to create um, 
you know, protect and be and stay as a welcoming city, particularly addressing issues of criminal justice reform and 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 making sure that um, you know we're we're addressing the issues of, of wage equity and opportunity in the city, and thirdly, be, being a more modern, progressive city going forward. Hancock's view of the issues is not unlike other candidates in this race. So, how does he differentiate himself? Um, we're already addressing the issues of affordable housing, attainable housing. Uh, we have made, you know, uh, in 2012, uh, 2013, I made the challenge of three by five to be build 3,000 units in five years. We not only exceeded that goal, but we did it within four years. And then we created the housing fund that will build, you know, um, allow us to build another 6,000 units in the next five years. So, we're doing the things to address the the issues of attainable and affordable housing in Denver. And we're going to continue to do even more. But the reality is that we've been doing these things since 2012, one year after entering into to office. In terms of mobility, we've already made a commitment of $2 billion. We're deploying those resources, starting with our Elevate Denver bond, which was passed uh, November 2017 by the people of Denver, to get more out of our streets. And we've also increased, I've increased the general fund allocation for our roads by 30% to help us meet those targets as well. And we're lobbying on the state and local levels um, to help us meet those uh, that $2 billion commitment as well. When it comes to modernization, quite frankly, we've already begun to modernize uh, many of our departments and our processes and becoming much more efficient, saving taxpayers uh, $30 million since 2011. I've trained uh, close to 6,000 city employees in Black Belt continuous process improvement since 2011 as part of our peak performance program. And we have a laboratory in our public works department that is ready to deploy new technology to help us move about the city um, in a more efficient but also more informed manner. That audio comes from Denverite's David Sachs, who covers the city beat. And David is with us all this week to help ground what we are hearing from the mayoral candidates. Hi again, David. Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. He mentions black belts. It's not that he's trained uh, karate experts. This is all about efficiency. Uh, he also talks about a lot of spending. Is his money where his mouth is? Uh, yes and no. There has been a lot of money dedicated to transportation and um, some money uh, dedicated to affordable housing. But the $2 billion he mentions there is uh, only verbally committed and they have not raised all that money yet. What else would you add from what you heard from the mayor? I'd add that uh, the mayor has overseen unprecedented growth. There's no doubt about that. Um, and he has later in his second term added an affordable housing fund and a $15 minimum wage. But a lot of people say that those things have come to the table too late, long after the growth has pushed a lot of people in Denver out. How much of his interactions with a former member of his security detail that were of a sexual nature, how much is that coming up in this race? Certainly Lisa Calderon has uh, seized on that, as well as um, Penfield Tate and Jamie Gillis. It's coming up, but um, the mayor says, well, that was, you know, now seven years ago or so. And um, he says he's atoned. Uh, but, but, you know, that, that still hangs over him for sure. It seems like his message is Denver's doing pretty well. Why change horses at this point? That's right. A big question is whether the people who vote in Denver like the direction that the city's going in. So, you know, if a new person comes in and starts running the city, uh, that means that a lot of his long-term initiatives might go by the wayside. And so the question is, are, are people happy with the direction? Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. David Sachs of Denverite. Tomorrow, candidate Penfield Tate.
When the U.S. wages war, Colorado feels it. There are some 50,000 active duty and reserve members here. It's why we want you to hear from presidential historian Michael Beschloss. He's in Denver tonight to talk about his latest book, Presidents of War. Michael Beschloss, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Absolutely delighted. What was your biggest epiphany in writing about presidents and their relationships with war? The biggest one is that we've gotten to the point where a president can almost get us involved in in a war single-handedly and overnight. And that's something the founders were absolutely terrified by because their whole thing was they wanted America to be as different from England as possible. And in English history, if a king became unpopular, he would sometimes generate a reason for an unnecessary war to unite the country and make him more popular. The founders always felt that if American presidents ever became tyrants, one of the ways that would happen would be presidents taking us into wars that were not necessary. Of course, I think of the War Powers Act, which uh, is a more recent fact in in the United States, which gives Congress the power to act. When when did that come about? And I guess at what point was it just skirted? Um, That was 1973-74. And what happened was America had been in the Vietnam War for nine years, long after it was wildly unpopular and Americans were outraged that we were still in it. And the reason that we were in the Vietnam War was uh, based on something called the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which, as I write about in the book, was based on an incident that actually never took place. Lyndon Johnson told the Congress that there had been an attack on an American ship off of North Vietnam. Congress almost unanimously passed a resolution saying, used armed force in South Asia. About two weeks later, Johnson found out that the attack was actually bad intelligence that hadn't happened. And rather than to go back to Congress and say, you know, I did this in good faith, but this you don't want a whole war based on something that never occurred. He never did that. And the result was Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon for nine years waged this war that cost almost 60,000 Americans untold Vietnamese based on something that never happened. And along comes the War Powers Act, which means that there must be a consultation of Congress within a certain period of time. There's a sort of right. clock that's set, Right. Right, and if if a president sends in forces in an engagement in another country after a certain period of time, Congress either has to approve, and if it doesn't approve, he has to yank them out. And the problem with that is that virtually every president since then has said he doesn't think that the War Powers Act is constitutional, so basically it has not really kicked in in a very important way. You go back to the uh, first presidents of this country and their relationship with war. On whom do you think war was hardest? That is, who who is most destroyed sort of emotionally or personally by war? Well, the thing I found was almost every single one of them was, both emotionally and physically, probably Abraham Lincoln. And you've seen the pictures, Ryan, of Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War and at the end was only four years, but he looks about 20 years older, doesn't he? Yeah. And the thing with Lincoln, for instance, was Lincoln did not want to distance himself from the people who were being killed. And there had to be a new national cemetery because so many Union soldiers were getting slaughtered. And Lincoln said, put it across the street from my summer house 
this will drive me crazy, but I, every day, I want to see those union graves being dug so that I can feel emotionally the consequence of these terrible decisions I'm making. What an anecdote. How did you find that? That's in the the Lincoln records of the people who spoke to Lincoln, and actually I went to the cemetery and also went to his summer house. And it shows that Lincoln not only had empathy, but he also felt it was very important, which I think you and I would agree with, that if you're a war president, you not look at these soldiers in too abstract a way. In contrast to that, Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War said, I don't want to get too emotionally involved. I want to look at this almost like a chess game. Lincoln would have been horrified. We've had the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, constant questions about how long those should go on, what our troop presence should be. Is there a moment in history that speaks to the current moment most applicably, do you think? I think one of them is that Congress should be involved in these things as much as possible from the very start. Because, as you know, in the Constitution it says, the president wants a war, he's got to go to Congress, and Congress has to declare the war. Yet, the last time Congress declared war was 1942, in the middle of World War II. And the result of that has been that, you know, Truman said it would take too much time, and Johnson wanted to wage his war based on a resolution. And ever since then, presidents have not gone to Congress and asked for a war declaration. I think they should go back to that if they really feel that strongly, because members of Congress can say, all right, you know, what is the worst case that might happen? They can say how popular the war might be in their districts or in their states. I think if that had happened with Lyndon Johnson, he might have been a little bit less quick to get deeply involved in Vietnam. What war in American history, uh, do you think deserves more attention? Uh, I think probably World War II, because it has so much effect on what's happening nowadays. More more attention. I feel like that's one of the wars that gets the most. I mean, gets written about all the time. Yeah. But 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt almost could not take us into war because Americans said, we remember Woodrow Wilson and World War I, killed 106,000 Americans, never achieved a League of Nations, never ended, wasn't a war to end all wars, and we're not going to ever let a president have that happen again. And as a result, Roosevelt had to go to extreme lengths to make it possible for Americans to support involvement in a war against Hitler and the Imperial Japanese. And the result of that was that because people thought that Roosevelt was so right, That is the reason why during the decades after World War II, Americans have been so eager to give presidents so much power to make war. Ah, so that plants some important seeds. Right, and it it deprives the system of the wisdom of Congress, which is exactly what the founders wanted. They wanted Congress to make these decisions, not presidents. It's interesting, a, a detail, um, I, I think that's in your book, which is that during World War II, we never really bombed concentration camps, did we? I mean, obviously, there were civilians there, but uh, there was never an elimination of them during the in war. In 1944, Roosevelt, as I write about, was urged to do that, and he ruled against it. He said, you'll be killing the people in the camps, we won't be able to help very much, and also we will be distracted from the central war aim of unconditional surrender of Germany. I disagree with that. I think that at the very least it would have put America on the record for all time saying we understand that the Holocaust is something that we have not seen 
before in human history. What is a question about war that you you didn't get a satisfying enough answer to? Because for so many of these stories, witnesses are not alive. Yeah, I think in Lyndon Johnson's case, why this guy who was so, con- you know, understood public opinion so well, understood what things the voters would accept and what things they would not accept, why against all of that, he still said, I have to pursue this Vietnam War that is not working for years after it was pretty clear that we were not going to win. I wish I could have gone back in time and asked him. Thank you for your time. Delighted. Thank you so much, Ryan. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss has written Presidents of War. We spoke last month. Tonight, he's speaking as part of the Denver Post's Pen and Podium series, which is sold out. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.